here and um, those wonderful songs that already reminded us of the great hope that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that those have been an encouragement to you and a comfort to your heart and soul as they've been to me as well. All right, let me pray for us as we begin our time in God's Word. Father, I feel like we have been catapulted by the words of those wonderful songs into your very presence. Just songs that remind us of your great attributes, your mighty power, your sovereignty, your authority, your mercy, your compassion, your love for us, the favor and the blessing that you bestowed upon us in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the lover of our souls. Father, thank you for that wonderful reminder this morning of gospel realities. We thank you for the reminder that, uh, Lord, everything comes from you. You're sovereign over it all, the good and the tough and the difficulty that we face in life. We thank you for the fact that you are one who promises us in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. And that, Father, there's nothing that can ultimately thwart your plans. And so we thank you for the, the sovereignty of God, your sovereignty, that it is the pillow upon which we can rest our head at night, as Spurgeon put it. Help us and be, remind us of that even this morning as we open up your word. And Lord, we're reminded of the wonderful ministry of restoration in the church. Teach us, Father. Help us to have soft and tender hearts as we open up your word. May you be glorified and your people be edified and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, brethren. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, and I want to read verses 1 and 2 as you stand with me for the reading of God's Word in honor of God's Word. As we often remind you, don't forget ever that this is God's authoritative, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word. Amen? Amen. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Hear the Word of the Lord. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Let me keep reading. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I've entitled this message, Grace-Fueled, Spirit-Empowered Restoration in the Church. Nathaniel Hawthorne's famous work, The Scarlet Letter, is a stirring piece of literature if you've read it. It was published in 1850. It was set in Puritan New England, and it's the eye-opening story of a married Puritan woman by the name of Hester Prynne. Prynne is led to committing adultery and ends up giving birth to an illegitimate baby in her life. As punishment for her sin, she's forced to wear a scarlet A for adultery or adulteress as a symbol of her immoral act. 
From that point forward, Prynne really struggles to free herself of the stigma and the ostracism that that scarlet letter brings to her. Hawthorne, having had a bad taste in his mouth about his upbringing, wrote this fictional story as his personal indictment upon what he felt was an unforgiving and hypocritical society of his day. The type of society that when someone sins or fails, responds self-righteously and in a condemnatory fashion. You know, many people, when they think about sin in the church and moral failure, feel the same way that perhaps Hawthorne felt. They think of instances when a person has done something wrong and the church has responded vindictively. The church has responded with harsh treatment. They think of dealing with sin in the church as a way to publicly shame or humiliate a person. Now to be sure, there are plenty of examples of churches, maybe you can think of some in your own Christian journey, that have not been faithful to dealing with sin God's way. On the one hand, some churches may deal with sin quite harshly, quite shamefully, unbiblically, in a punitive kind of a way. That is unbiblical, and that is sinful for sure. On the other hand, other churches don't address sin at all. They have a very low view of the holiness of God and a very low view of sin in someone's life or in the life of the church. Both of those extremes are sinful and unbiblical and don't bring glory to God. They are a distortion of how God wants us to deal with sin and address sin in the church personally and collectively. And this is why we must look to the one who alone, brethren, can grant us wisdom as to how to think and how to respond when sin happens amongst us. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what anyone thinks. Amen? It doesn't matter what Kempis thinks or what anyone thinks. What matters is what God's Word says. That's what matters. God's Word is final. And as we look at Scripture, we're reminded that addressing sin in the church is not the invention of men, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to die to pay for sins. Addressing sin in the church also is not an act of sinful vindictiveness, but one of pastoral care from the, from the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us and cares for us, who gave His life for us. Addressing sin in the church is not an act of destruction or wanting to shame someone, but one of loving restoration. Loving restoration. That's our key word this morning as we consider how we should think and how we should respond to sin in the church. Restoration. And I want to give us a couple of helpful principles as you take notes for practicing grace-fueled, Spirit-empowered, loving restoration in the church. Grace-fueled, Spirit-empowered, loving restoration in the church. What does that look like? What does that mean? And I want to encourage you to view these two principles that we're going to outline here and consider and ponder and reflect upon and apply ourselves to. I want you to consider these from the framework of Christians, other believers being your family. We are a church family, a spiritual family. If you've repented of your sins and you put your confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to know that the Scripture 
the most beautiful metaphor that the Scripture has for us as those who've turned from our sins is that we are now spiritual family. We are a part of one another. We are in union with Christ and we are in union with one another. And that is an indestructible spiritual family that you're a part of as a result of the person and the work of Jesus. In Mark 3.35, Jesus said that those who do the will of God, by which He meant His followers, are His spiritual family. More than even His biological family at the time. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he refers to uh, the church is referred to there as the household of God. God is our Father, and we are His children, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we refer to one another as brethren. That's why we refer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are all part of one spiritual family. And beloved, the more that you and I understand this beautiful framework and live in accordance with with the great reality that we are a church family, the more helpful rather than hurtful we will be to one another. The more useful we will be in the lives of one another. Especially in the most challenging moments of life. When difficulties hit and strike. And so, as God's family, and you think about that framework, I want you to write this down. First and foremost, we need to understand the purpose of church restoration. Understand the purpose of church restoration. That's your first point. For what purpose do we practice grace-fueled, Spirit-empowered, loving church restoration? And I want to give you a five-fold purpose, if you will. Five sub-points here, okay? First of all, we do this for God's glory. We do this for God's glory. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, if you will. Hebrews 12. And if you don't have a Bible, follow along with the person next to you, okay? You need to turn there. Hebrews 12 and verse 7. Nothing is more important in the church than upholding God's glory. And listen, one of the ways that God magnifies Himself is by disciplining us as our loving Heavenly Father for our good but for His glory so that we don't destroy our lives and harm and hurt others because of unrepentant sin in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7, writing to believers, writing to believers as God's children, it is for discipline, he says, that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. Notice the terminology there. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 8, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He says one of the, the great um, evidences of the legitimacy of the fact that God is your Father is that He implements loving discipline in your life as a believer because you are His child. Just like a human father would. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of human fathers, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. The writer of Hebrews is saying here, even the best of human fathers discipline their children, albeit imperfectly, because they are weak themselves, but they do the best that they can. The most faithful human fathers do that as an act of love for their kids. But the perfect Father 
perfectly disciplines you for your good and for His glory, you see. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. None of us like a spiritual spanking, right? Have you been there? But sorrowful. To those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline produces, in other words, the righteous conduct that God desires, right? End of verse 10, so that we may share His holiness, so that we may be more and more like Jesus. And so as Christians, listen, our Heavenly Father brings correction into our lives for His glory and for our good, that we might be more and more like Christ. And that's ultimately what glorifies Him, that you and I may be conformed to the image of of Jesus, the Son of His love. So it's for God's glory first and foremost. Number two, we also practice grace-fueled, spirit-empowered, loving restoration in the church for the honor of God's Word. Write that down, for the honor of God's Word. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Wonderful text. And keep in mind that these words here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 are on the heels of the qualifications given for elders and for deacons in the church. And Paul says in verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Beautiful words, they're pillar and support. They're related words from architecture. And they refer to to something which holds up something else. Something which holds firm the truth of the Word of God in the world. Listen, the church does not create the truth or rewrite the truth, but upholds the truth and supports the truth in word and conduct. That is what we do when we speak and we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Honoring the Word of God is not a peripheral issue. When we honor God's Word, we honor the God who gave His Word. Amen? He gave His Word to us. When we honor God's Word by obeying and following it, we are acknowledging that God is boss and that what He says is is final and binding for our lives and for the church. All of this underscores why it's important to think rightly about sin in the church and deal with with it rightly and righteously, right? Because the honor of God's Word is at stake. Third, we also practice grace-fueled, Spirit-empowered, loving restoration in the church for the protection, purity, and holiness of the church. For the protection, purity, and holiness of the church. You don't have to turn to this particular text, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verses 1-8, through eight, Paul gives some chilling instructions to the church at Corinth about dealing with sin. There's a man in the church, a professing believer, who is committing incest at the church in, in Corinth. And Paul says, instead of dealing with sin and taking it seriously, listen, you are, you are downplaying the seriousness of that sin. You need to deal with it definitively. You need to excommunicate the unrepentant professing believer, this man who fails to repent. You need to get him out. Why? For the sake of the purity and protection of the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says. It's the loving thing to do, right? You don't leave sinful poison lying around so that others are harmed. You address it. You deal with it. 
in love and with grace and with compassion, but definitively. You must do that for the sake of the protection of the body. Similarly, in a passage that you know, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 27, that, that great passage with instructions for husbands and wives, for marriage. The greater point that Paul is making there is that marriage is a picture of, of Christ and His church. And Jesus died for His church, His bride. Why? To purchase her exclusively for Himself and in order that He might make her holy and pure. Christ died for her, having washed her with the water of the Word so that she would be holy and blameless, having been washed by Christ. And so Christ died for His church that she would be pure and holy. And thus, we need to protect her. We need to protect the church and the purity of the church. And of course, you understand that when we say the church, we're talking about believers. We're talking about the redeemed ones. We're talking about you who have trusted in Christ. And that is really the responsibility of elders, pastors, and overseers in the church. Under shepherds. 1 Peter chapter 5, under the chief shepherd. Hear me. So important is the holiness and purity of God's people, His church, that protecting the church is one of the primary responsibilities of elders, pastors, overseers. Same office. Three synonymous terms. Same office. We are called to know, to lead, to feed, and to protect you both doctrinally and by way of your conduct, calling you to what the Word of God says with compassion and love and patience, but definitively because God's Word is final, right? Look with me in Acts chapter 20 to see this. The responsibility of elders, pastors, overseers to protect the body. This is how serious this matter is to the Lord. This is Paul bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders, and he gives some sobering instructions to them in verse 28 of Acts 20, Be on guard for yourselves, Ephesian elders, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit... Nobody made you elders. The Spirit of God called you to this. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's one term, episkopos, right? And then to shepherd. There's our term for pastor right there. And back in verse 17, he uses the word elders. All three terms, synonymous terms for the same office. He says, you've been called to shepherd the church of God, verse 28, which He purchased with His own blood. <laughs> That's heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, Therefore, in light of this, be on the alert. Protect the flock, elders, He says. There are going to be those who are going to speak perverse things, most likely speaking of twisted doctrine, but also applies to sinful conduct that is contrary to what the Word of God says. Contact, uh, um, conduct that's going to be hurtful to the church. Thus, he says, be on guard. Protect the church from sin and false doctrine that needs to be addressed for the purity and the protection of the church. Why? Because the church is priceless. Jesus gave His life for the redeemed. For the people of God. God purchased her with the blood of His own Son. Thus, she is infinitely valuable. Go with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Look at this. Again, qualifications of an elder, pastor, overseer, same office. Titus chapter 1. And verse 9. He just dealt with the character, qualities of a man who is to 
serve as elder. And now he speaks about, what about with relation to the Word? What kind of a man should he be? Titus chapter 1, verse 9. He must be one who is holding fast the faithful Word which is in accordance with the teaching. Why? So that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You see that? Paul says, The reason why it's essential that elders, pastors, overseers be competent to handling the Word of God, being able not only to teach it didactically, but also defend it, which requires a whole other level of competence, right? The reason why he must be able to do this is for the equipping and the protection of the church. That's how serious the protection and the purity of the holiness and the holiness of the church is. That elders are to be able to do this, to exhort to refute those who contradict. Because there are many liars and deceivers. He goes on to talk about this in light of false teaching that creeps creeps, uh, up from within and those who come in from without. Thus, the need to be protecting the body. Elders are to know, feed, lead, and protect each of you. And us collectively, right, who are Christians by means of the Word of God. And so that requires that we know the Word of God and are able to defend the Word of God. Hebrews 13, 17, just write that text down. It says that elders, pastors, overseers protect you by watching over your souls. That we will give an account for your souls. Well, that's sobering, brethren. Elders have been put in place to watch over your souls. We will give an account for your souls. And what's your responsibility according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17? It's this, that you allow shepherds to do this with joy and not with grief. Listen, for that would be unprofitable for you. Not just for us, for you. He says, allow your shepherds to keep watch over your soul. Let them do it with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. For you who are under the shepherding care of your elders. So loving engaging of sin and restoration is for the purity and the holiness of the church. Fourth, fourth, we also practice grace-fueled, spirit-empowered, loving restoration in the church for witness to the world. For witness to the world. The testimony of the church is always at stake, brethren. Not in the sense of, hey world, look at us, we are clean and you are so filthy. Listen, if it were not for the grace of God, you and I wouldn't be here either. Amen? Such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were cleansed, right? You were justified in the name of the Lord. We were there too. So not with that kind of self-righteous kind of attitude, but in the sense that the world can witness in the way that we live, brethren, that Christ saves people not only from the penalty of our sin, but also from sin's grip and from the power of sin over our lives, you see. That the Gospel has power to deliver people from sin's tyranny and dominance. That's why we are to deal with sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, Peter, Peter speaks of those who have received mercy. Those who are children of light and that we are to live Christ-like so that the world around us can, can witness our excellent behavior, right? And are drawn to Christ. And so we lovingly deal with sin in the church and address it for witness sake so that the world sees that the Gospel has the power to change people from the heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20 that the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Power to do what? Power to deliver people from sin. 
and from sin's dominance, you see. Finally, fifth, the purpose of addressing sin in the church is restorative. Restorative. It's for the purpose of restoration for the sinning Christian. Restoration. And I want you to go with me to our root or base text, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. We're going to camp out here for the rest of our time. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Notice, the purpose of addressing sin in the church is restorative. Restorative. Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, believers, those who have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, what is that trespass? It's the, a Greek word that is synonymous with sin. The synonym for sin. It means to commit a false step, a blunder. A stumbling, a crossing of the, of the line. The word referred to a, a Christian falling away from a divine precept, instruction, or command. When a person is caught in any trespass, what are you to do? What are we to do when this happens? Right? He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore such a one. We don't ignore ongoing sin. We don't turn the blind eye to it. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't downplay it, diminish its importance or its potential harm in the church. Note, the brethren are instructed to engage in restoring the sinning brother or sister. Love. A grace-filled environment. A spirit-empowered kind of environment. A loving culture in the church is one where we engage. We roll up our sleeves and in love, we engage in addressing sin in the church for all the reasons that we just outlined right now. Fivefold purpose. And please don't miss the significance of this beautiful word in verse 1. Restore, right? Restore such a one. Beautiful word. Katharzitzo. It means to mend, to repair something that has been damaged or broken. Listen, so as to rectify or return it to its previous condition. That's the ultimate goal. A person's spiritual health, stability, and well-being. It was used of, of, in fishing of mending nets, this word. Kathartizo. It was used relationally of restoring or mending a conflict between two opposing parties. But its most beautiful use was a medical one. That of repairing a fracture. Of setting a dislocated limb or of mending a broken bone. You ever have one of those injuries? You ever have one of those, a fractured or broken bone? How did the nurse or the doctor handle your injury? Hey, sit down over here, right? Sit over here. You're so dumb. How could you let this happen? You shouldn't have allowed this to happen. Is that how they handle your injury? I hope not, right? That's a bad doctor right there, right? Fire that doctor and go find another one. No. How did they handle it, brother or sister? They handled it with care with compassion, with graciousness, right? Tenderness, carefulness, gentleness. It's already painful enough, so handle with care. Yes? Handle with care. That's the imagery of this beautiful word. Kathartizo, to restore. I love it. One of my favorite words in the New Testament. It speaks to the manner or approach that we must have or we must take when addressing sin. He says, in a spirit of gentleness, doesn't he? In a spirit of gentleness or meekness. In other words, not abrasively, not harshly, 
not in a condemnatory fashion, in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. That's the loving manner in how we deal with sin in the church, with one another and collectively. But Cathar Titzel also speaks of the ultimate goal, doesn't it, of addressing sin? It speaks of, of being intentional of the aim or the goal that we must have, and it is this, of repairing or of helping someone get back to a healthy condition because we love them, because we want to see God being glorified in them as they're restored back to fullness of spiritual health and ministry usefulness. That's the idea. And so this is utterly, utterly important. So please pay close attention to this. Engaging in sin in the church, brethren, is not punitive. It is not vindictive. It is not arbitrary. It's neither of those things or anything else for that matter along those lines. It's restorative. It's restorative. Its ultimate goal is to get the sinning Christian back to spiritual health and spiritual vibrancy in their relationship with God and in their relationship with others who have been impacted by that sin. This, of course, takes loving and deliberate engagement, doesn't it? To deal with heart issues there. It takes time. It takes exposing ourselves to the Word of God, to good relationships, so that root heart issues are addressed, leading to deep, sustainable, long-lasting change that exalts Christ, that is good for others around us. It takes time. None of this, of course, is a quick fix, nor always easy. It's painful. But restoration, brethren, is what the Gospel is all about. Yes, it's, it's redemptive in nature. From the very beginning of our new birth, Christ came to redeem us, to buy us out of the marketplace of slavery to sin, to purchase us for Himself. And when we put our trust in Him and in His sacrifice as payment for our sins, we are restored fully and completely back to God, our Creator. He becomes our, our Father instead of our enemy. We are justified by faith. This is the glory of the Gospel of Christ. Amen? This is our hope. Christ in Christ, God forgives us of our sins, past, present, and future, and restores us to Himself. What happens to our sin when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing else but trust in Him. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. And all God's people say what? Amen. Because He nailed our sins to the cross of Christ, paid in full, debt is completely done away with in Christ. Hebrews 10.16 God says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put My laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more in Christ. And later on He says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, of our sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because Christ's death is sufficient. Isn't it? It is enough apart from anything that we could have ever done. In Christ, God remembers our sins no more. What happened to God? Did He forget my sin? Does He suffer from memory loss? Of course not. What this means is that God no longer holds your sin against you when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and He's your Lord and your Savior. We no longer owe a debt to God as Christians because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Jesus has definitively atoned for our sins. Amen? Now, here then, the implication, 
one of them for our ongoing dealings with one another of this wonderful gospel reality. That if the gospel of Jesus Christ is restorative, brethren, then in our ongoing interactions with one another as members of Christ, we are to practice loving restoration in the church. We are to engage sin in love and with grace and definitively. Our approach to one another when dealing with and addressing sin will be redemptive, however. Seeking forgiveness and extending forgiveness will be our ongoing practice leading to restoration amongst one another. Repairing broken lives. And then learning to love one another and accept one another as God has accepted us in Christ. That's what Romans 15 verse 7 says. Therefore, accept one another, believers, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. In other words, just as God has been gracious to you and His dealings with you in Christ and His favor is upon you, you ought to do the same also with another brother or sister. That's an implication of this wonderful reality of redemptive, restorative kind of dealing with sin. And so our approach and thinking with regards to our sinning brother or sister must be restorative. Restorative. So we must understand the purpose of church restoration. Otherwise, hear me, we're going to resort to sinful ways of thinking about this and to sinful ways of approaching and dealing with one another if and when there is sin amongst us. Got to be very careful. But secondly, secondly, as a church family, remember that framework? We must know the people of church restoration. Write that down. We must know the people of church restoration. Who is to do the church restoration? Someone says, well, of course, the pastor's elders. Others say, well, the godly people of the church, those who have it all together, right? (laughs) Yet others say, the older people of the church, those who have been around the block for a while, right? But what does the Bible say? Look at chapter 6 and verse 1 of Galatians. Brethren, right? Again, that's family language there. Brothers or sisters who've made a commitment to die to yourself and are following Jesus, brothers or sisters or brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Who are the spiritual? Who are those people there in verse 1? Maybe it's super or elite Christians in the church. Right? Maybe it's those who have reached some elevated stage of maturity, right? As the ancient Gnostics used to teach, right? These super people amongst us. Well, I think the previous context of Galatians 5, 16 through 26 tells us, you know the passage, right? There are those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in accordance to the Spirit. I think he's talking about those people. The spiritual are those who are walking by the Spirit, yielding and submitting in their lives to the Spirit's leading perfectly, brethren, No, none of us can be perfect. We know that. Every single one of us have weaknesses and frailties and susceptibilities given even our backgrounds and our baggage. We understand that. That's not what this means. But it's those who are characteristically as the habitual pattern and pursuit of their lives following after the Lord Jesus and obeying His Word, right? Striving by the grace of God and emphasize that by the grace of God to live in a way that honors the Lord. The spiritual are not perfect Christians. Christians with no common struggles of their own. Super or elite Christians or those with official positions in the church. That's not who the spiritual are. 
These are Christians who, albeit per imperfectly and flawed themselves, right, by God's grace, are striving to honor the Lord, walk in submission to the Word of God, seeking to live a life obediently before the Lord, which is how the Spirit of God guides and directs us. We walk by the Spirit when we submit to the Word of God and we are obeying His Word, right? Rather than disobeying it and rebelling against His Word and living that way. This instruction in verse 1, you who are spiritual, I think is given because God wants us to address sin with humility and, listen, without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. How are you going to help someone else if you're a believer if you yourself are walking in the flesh? and spiritually unhealthy yourself. I constantly think about this when every time I fly on an airplane, and I just went to St. Louis recently, as you guys know, some of you guys, to do a conference up there, and I was reminded of this again, that right before the plane takes off, you're given these emergency instructions, right, by the, by the people there, the workers, and they say if the plane were to go down or malfunction, what do they tell you that you need to do first and foremost with the oxygen mask were the plane to go down. What are you to do first? Put it on, right? You're no use to anyone around you and you're not positioned to help anyone if you're passed out. So you put the mask on first so that you can help other people. And Jesus spoke of the importance of this, even in terms of us being walking in, in, in spiritual health if we're going to be positioning ourselves to helping other people with their struggles. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The imagery there is telling, isn't it? How are you going to help Call someone out on their little splinter or twig is the idea there if you have a tree trunk in your eye. That's the picture, right? Hyperbolic imagery there by Jesus. You're in no position to help anyone or to see clearly if you don't deal with your sin first. So we must be spiritually healthy, brethren. That's the, the reason why this is brought in here. The, those who are spiritual, who are yielding themselves to the Spirit's leading and so as Christians, we must, by God's grace, be walking worthy of the gospel so that we can help others. And why do we do this? Because we are the holiness police? No. We do so for the glory of Christ, for fidelity to His, to His Word. We do so because we are church family, and family loves and cares and is here to help one another. Amen? So that we become like Jesus together. Somebody has said, that a genuine love is most concerned with the purity of its object. Think about that. Genuine biblical love is most concerned with the purity of its object. If we really love one another, then we're going to desire purity and holiness amongst one another. Yes? That's the heart of it. That's why we engage in coming alongside of one another. Now, significantly, did you notice the caution given to each of us there? When a brother or sister falls into sin... Notice, he says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's our manner or the way we approach someone. Here it is. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Notice that. Each one looking to yourself so that you too 
will not be tempted. Looking to yourself. Skapeo, that's a, a word that, that, that signifies scoping out your own life. Scope out your own life as you lovingly address sin in the life of someone else. Examine your own life. Do a careful self-assessment. Continually put your, your life and your heart under the divine microscope, if you will. It's a caution for each of us. It's a warning for each of us. Why? Because you and I too, beloved, are susceptible to sin. Yes? We too are vulnerable to sin. We're not immune to sin. None of us are above it. None of us have arrived. This is a caution to each one of us. That when a brother or sister falls into sin, we don't self-righteously ever even think for a minute that we cannot fall ourselves. We can too fall. And perhaps this is, this is you today and where you're at this morning. May I lovingly encourage you and exhort you to confess whatever sin you are harboring to the Lord. If there is secret, known, unrepentant sin in your life, this is the time to come clean before the Lord. Confess it to the Lord. And confess it to those whom you've hurt, who've been impacted by that sin. I've told you before, the, the pathway to Christ-exalting change and healing in our lives is humble repentance, right? Humble repentance, brother and sister. It's a good place to be when you are humbly repentant over your sin. James chapter 4 says that, that God is opposed to the proud, but gives what to the humble? Grace. Grace to the humble. It's a good place to be. Conversely, Proverbs 16.18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. There's a warning, there's a caution right there as well, right? Regarding pride and thinking that we're not capable of sinning as well. But then I love the following verse. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to men. You're not alone in this battle, right? And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. He is faithful. Amen? 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Oh, that's beautiful. What a beautiful reminder that though sin is great, God in the Gospel is greater than our sin. Amen? 1 John 4, 4, Greater is He who is in you, speaking of God the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world, speaking of Satan, the adversary. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. So my brethren, it's this understanding of the glory and the wonder and the magnificence of the redemptive gospel that's going to drive us collectively and corporately to practice this grace-fueled, spirit-empowered, loving restoration in the church individually and collectively. The type of attitude that's going to lead us to what Galatians 6.2 says, to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the great reminder that You are a God who has restored us to Yourself in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. 
and faith alone. Thank you for that wonderful reminder that our vertical relationship with you can actually be reconciled. And you have made the initiative, the divine initiative, by virtue of sending your beloved Son into the world to pay for sins, to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he is the basis and the source of our hope, his return. We thank you for that. Help us to also understand and live out the implications of this in our horizontal relationships with one another in even the toughest moments of life and of our Christian journeys when, Father, there is weakness and failure and sin. Father, help us to live that out even as a church family. Thank you for that wonderful reminder that, Lord, we ought to love one another in the truth. And part and parcel of what that means is that we are going to desire the purity and the holiness of one another, that we would be like Christ willing to say the hard things, willing to say the things that need to be said rather than the things that someone may want to hear. Father, help us to have that kind of loving, resolved commitment to one another for your glory. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.